0: Is a teacher's red pen on an essay necessary? Yes, if students are going to learn how to write clearly and persuasively. Are multiple reconstructive surgeries necessary? Yes, if a person's been in a horrible accident and wants to recover. Do parents need to discipline their children? Yes, if kids are going to learn right from wrong and how to respect authority. Red pen, reconstructive surgeries, and parental discipline can be scary and painful for a time, but in the long run, they have their good effect, and teachers, surgeons, and parents are loving to correct. Do you ever need to be corrected? I hope we'd all say yes, but being corrected isn't easy. It takes spiritual maturity to welcome and receive rebuke from others with humility and thankfulness. A pastor once told me a story about a man who was nominated for elder and in the vetting process confessed to having an anger problem. Well, the elders agreed with him and deemed him unqualified to be an elder. And guess what happened? He got angry at them. Sometimes we know we have a problem. But we start to get self-righteous when others say we have a problem. Do you want other believers to reprove you when you sin, or would you rather be left alone? How you answer that question says a lot about you. Proverbs 12 verse 1 says, Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. Proverbs 15 verse 10 says, There is severe discipline for him who forsakes the way, Whoever hates reproof will die. Hmm. We also find it difficult to love others by reproving them. We know they need it. We just hope someone else does it. We often don't trust the Lord when we know we should reprove other believers caught in sin. Is gentle rebuke and correction one way you seek to love other believers? I don't think this is a difficult sermon to understand, but it is a difficult sermon to obey. But don't you want to obey Jesus Christ because he rescued you from your sin and misery? Don't you love his way of doing things? Maybe God will use this sermon to help you grow spiritually and to be a bigger blessing to your church. I've organized this sermon like a catechism. I'll ask a question and then seek to answer it. And I'm trusting the Spirit to help you see the necessity and goodness of this message for you. I hope you feel loved by the Good Shepherd because you see how he cares for you and his other little ones through this practice. This could transform our church. First question, why is church discipline essential to a true and healthy church? Think about what you've learned so far from verses 1 through 9. You've learned that repentance and humility are essential for heaven, that to receive Christ's little ones is to receive Christ, that sin is serious, hell is horrible, and tempting Christ's little ones to sin brings God's terrifying judgment. That we must go to drastic measures to avoid sin in verses 10 through 14 god is pictured as a shepherd going to get his straying sheep but how does the good shepherd get his straying sheep verses 15 through 20 explain so verses 1 through 14 connect to verses 15 through 20. why is church discipline essential it's one of the three marks of a true church The pure preaching of the gospel, the pure administration of the sacraments, and church discipline are how you can tell a church is truly a church. Dr. Hendrickson said, lack of discipline is a curse to any church. There must be rules regarding faith and conduct. If a church doesn't obey Jesus with the practice of church discipline, they are grossly negligent in their Christ-given duty, or they aren't a church at all. Church discipline is essential for other reasons. It promotes and protects the purity and well-being of the church. It maintains the clear distinction between the church and the world. It upholds God's law and maintains true justice in the church. It protects victims while also seeking the salvation and life of their transgressors. It encourages solemnity toward spiritual things. It honors God. And there are other reasons. My friend Pastor Steve Estes said about these challenging verses, quote, I think it is one of the most frequently disobeyed passages in the New Testament, but God commands it. And if we were to do this w- with one another, how many really nasty problems do you think would be solved and nipped in the bud if we were to obey this passage? It would be a remarkable change, end quote. Church discipline is essential for a church because Jesus commanded it. Second question, with what kind of heart should church discipline be done? What have we learned in the previous verses? Reproof and church discipline should be done with the fear of God in the heart, with a humble and repentant heart, with a heart filled with hatred for sin and what it does to people, with a heart filled with compassion and care, with a heart just like our fathers, relentlessly loving and caring, exuberantly rejoicing over repentance and restoration, confidently trusting in God's sovereign will, and never despising his little ones. Verses 1 through 14 prepare us for verses 15 through 20. Like father, like son, right? Galatians 6.1 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. There it is. Church discipline is done with a gentle and humble heart bent toward restoration and a heart that recognizes one's own inclination to sin in the same way. We may feel as if rebuking or disciplining another Christian is cruel, but maybe that's because we don't understand our Father's heart, or the means our Father uses to protect and restore us. Maybe we don't know what true love is, and how to love one another God's way. I know they're difficult verses to obey, But why do you think we wouldn't obey verses 15 through 20? Maybe the problem is in our hearts. And what kind of heart should we have when a brother rebukes us? David answered the question in Psalm 141 verse 5, Let a righteous man strike me, it is a kindness. Let him rebuke me, it is oil for my head. Let my head not refuse it. The prophet Nathan Uh, Rebuked David over adultery and David repented. He didn't refuse the hard but truthful word. His heart was right. Third question. Is confronting a brother about their sin always the first step in dealing with sin? No, there's a much better first step. I've included a helpful diagram in your sermon notes that I've borrowed and adapted from Jay Adams. You'll notice that the first step is self-discipline. The best scenario is when a fellow believer recognizes their sin against you and comes to you seeking forgiveness and reconciliation. If we've sinned, our duty is to go right away. But for various reasons, that doesn't always happen. So Jesus explains what to do when that doesn't happen. Another first step is overlooking an offense. Sometimes we need to overlook sins against us. Proverbs 19 verse 11 says, good sense makes one slow to anger and it is his glory to overlook an offense. First Peter 4:8 adds, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. All sin is serious, but sometimes when we are sinned against, we need to overlook the offense and drop it because we love our brother. I'm not talking about overlooking things like abuse, embezzlement, lying, heresy, and serious offenses. I'm talking about infrequent, out-of-character, isolated offenses that raise eyebrows. You understand they were worked up, it flew out of their mouth, and you chose not to be offended because of love. It, it isn't a pattern or a besetting sin for them, so you lovingly let it go. I think many people have loved me in this way. But I've also been deeply loved when people have confronted me. My parents, Christina, my children, Bob Hopper, Grant McKinney, and others have confronted me in my sin, and I'm grateful. But you know, sometimes things nag at us. We can't seem to let them go. It it may not be a big deal, but we're hurt and can't seem to shake it off. We have an obligation to go to the person who hurt us and talk with them about it. Going gives our brothers and sisters an opportunity to humbly repent, displaying the fruit of the gospel at work in their lives. Fourth question, what is the ultimate goal of church discipline? It's right there in verse 15 that we would gain or win our brother. We love our brother, we want to care for our brother, we don't want to sin, uh, don't want sin to destroy our brother, we don't want to be alienated from our brother, so we go to our brother to gain him. We go in private to help our brother recognize his sin and guilt and to encourage him to repent so we can grant forgiveness and be reconciled. The goals of discipline include repentance, forgiveness, reconciliation, restoration, salvation, sanctification, restoring our brother back to the safety of the church and the like. Again, Galatians 6.1 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, that means sin has grabbed them, you who are spiritual should restore him. The goal is restoration. James 5, 19 and 20 say, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. When you go to a sister in Christ to reprove her and bring her back from her sin, you are courageously working for her salvation and eternal joy in Christ. You're loving her as Christ loves her. She may not listen, but true believers have the Holy Spirit in them uh, who convicts them. We expect true believers to listen and repent If you gain her, in a sense, you have saved her from the consequences of ongoing sin. But this is so hard to do. But if we truly understand verses 1 through 14, we will also understand verses 15 through 20. Doing this is the fruit the gospel produces in Christ's church. We should all want this for ourselves. We should pursue this. Why? Because the good shepherd intends this for our good The Good Shepherd protects all his sheep through this. If you don't want this, you need to check your heart. Fifth question, why don't churches do church discipline considering God commands it for our protection? Lots of reasons. They don't know God or his word. The love of God is not in them. The, the spirit is not in them. They're self-righteous and self-centered. They love their sin. They don't believe sin and hell are very serious. They don't understand how Jesus shepherds them through the shepherding ministry of their local church. They're scared to get close to people. They'd rather gossip than confront. There are lots of, of uh, potential reasons churches don't do this, but quite frankly, it comes down to this. Churches don't practice church discipline because they don't trust the Lord. They do church their way instead of God's way because they don't trust their Lord. We need to trust the Lord on this. Jesus gave us verses 15 through 24 the protection and well-being of his little ones. And the more we love him and his little ones, the more we'll take verses 15 through 20 seriously. Sixth question. What is the process of church discipline? So another Christian sinned against you, and they didn't come to you to make it right, and you don't think it's prudent to overlook the offense. What should you do? Jesus gave us a great process to follow to seek forgiveness and reconciliation. This process relates to a child of God sinning against another child of God. This is for Christians sinning against other Christians. How is sin among brothers and sisters dealt with in a way that pleases God? And to be clear, this is not the process for every single sin. Jesus is talking about the process for sins committed against you personally, and most likely privately. Also consider this, this process doesn't really make sense without official church membership. I think that's pretty clear. The assumption here is that believers belong to a local church body and are willingly and joyfully submitting themselves as God commands to one another and to the shepherding care of a group of elders. We cannot make sense of verses 15 through 20 without clearly defined church membership. Attending a church is different than belonging to a church and submitting yourself willingly and joyfully to the shepherding oversight and care of a church. How do verses 15 through 20 work without clearly defined membership in a local church? I I don't know a good answer. Verses 15 through 20 might be a big reason many people don't become members of a local church. They don't want to submit to Christ's shepherding care that comes through the shepherding ministry of a local church. Avoiding membership is a dangerous misstep for many people today. Let's get into the process. Number one, go to your brother one-on-one. This idea is rooted in old covenant law. Israel knew who was within Israel. And Leviticus 19, 17, and 18 says, "...you shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord." Here's what Jesus tells you to do. Verse 15, "...if your brother," meaning a brother or sister in Christ, "...sins against you, go and tell him his fault." between you and him alone, so one-on-one, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Your sister sinned against you. She didn't come to you, and you don't think it's best to overlook her offense? Jesus is telling you that you must go to your sister and show her her fault, to gain her for her benefit and growth and for yours. Presumably, it was a private sin. So, you must go privately as to not involve more people than necessary. You care about her reputation and don't want to gossip, uh, gossip. And you don't want her sin to destroy her. You love your sister too much to let it go. So, you go trusting the Lord and seeking to gain your sister. The assumption here is that you're committed to forgive her if she repents. Matthew 16, 14 and 15 come to mind. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. We don't go to grind it in. We go to win them, to help them repent, to offer forgiveness, and to move on in love. And when Jesus said, if he listens to you, Two things come to mind. Number one, sometimes your brother will listen to you. He will repent and you will have won him back. It's wonderful. But number two, sometimes your brother will not repent. Verses 16 through 20 exist because sometimes your brother or sister doesn't listen. And if he or she doesn't listen, we do not offer forgiveness and move on. It's not the end of the matter. We have more to do. There are other steps for the good of our brother or sister. She repents, forgive. She excuses or stiffens, follow Jesus to the next step. Number two, go to your brother again with one or two witnesses. Here, Jesus borrows from the Old Covenant law, specifically Deuteronomy 19 verse 15, which shows a link between the New Covenant church and Israel, the Old Covenant church. Two or three witnesses were needed to establish a charge against someone, verse 16, but if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, Jesus didn't specify timing. Maybe we do the one-on-one multiple times, but at a certain point, we realize they're not listening. So we go again with one or two witnesses. Going back is really difficult. But think about verses 1 through 14. Sin is serious. Hell is horrible. Sometimes sheep wander off. The Father's heart is to go and bring them back. We persist in the shepherd's plan because we love his sheep, his little ones. And trust he will work in the process. Pastor Steve Estes gave some reasons to take one or two people with you. Number one, sometimes we need to hear things more than once for it to sink in. Number two, it increases the likelihood that the person will listen. Number three, it underlines the seriousness of the offense. And number four, if the sin goes unaddressed, it will get worse. Sin always expands. Jesus is the good shepherd. He knows what his sheep need. He gave this process to us as a gift because through his process he shepherds his sheep by his word and spirit. Are the one or two witnesses there to provide more evidence for the original offense? That's a tough question. It seems as if the original offense was done privately because the rebuke should be in private. Maybe there were no other witnesses. Maybe you ask others who saw or heard the offense to come with you, but verse 16 likely refers to having one or two godly and trustworthy people with you to hear your ongoing reproof of the one who sinned against you. The the one or two witnesses provide accountability as you continue the process. They are there to help the person move toward repentance so forgiveness and reconciliation can come. So you really want to pick the godliest and most trustworthy people within the church. It's not gang up time. It's a time to love your brother or sister by helping them repent unto forgiveness and restoration. Because if they don't repent, their soul is endangered of God's judgment. Verses 1-9 through Again, the hope is that the brother listens, confesses, and repents Forgiveness is granted, and he is brought back and restored, but it may be that he doesn't listen even to the witnesses. Now what? Your brother is in serious trouble. You can't at this point forgive and forget. There, There are other steps. Number three, go to your elders and report the matter so the entire church can be involved. Verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them tell it to the church at this point it's clear she's not repenting more drastic measures must be taken in order to love her again this assumes clearly defined membership dr hendrickson commented quote churches uh, church must here be taken in the sense of the locally organized fellowship of believers end quote but how does that work Would you need to to call a member meeting? Do you stand up on a Sunday asking all non-members to leave uh, for a moment? I think uh, verse 17 implies taking the matter to the elders, getting the shepherds involved, and they come alongside to help. And eventually, if need be, the elders will call the members together to consider the wayward and unrepentant sheep. The congregation must know in order to appeal to their wayward sister, to reach out, to try to warn her uh, of her serious unrepentant sin. Again, we need verses 1 through 14 for this. We need the father's heart. One of the sheep is straying and the other 99 must pray, must plead with this little sheep not to leave the flock. Do you remember what I, I read last week about sheep? Uh, here's a part of it. Ensuring that sheep always have visual contact with other sheep will prevent excess stress when moving, handling, or housing them. A sheep will become highly agitated if it is separated from the rest of the flock. End quote. The 99 have a responsibility to the one. They must plead for the one to repent and remain with the flock. Scripture calls elders... Shepherds because they must shepherd the sheep by exercising careful oversight, but they are also sheep. The church must be involved because they have the shepherd's heart to go after the straying sheep. What would it mean for a church to let the strays go by not disciplining them, just letting them pursue their sin? That's not love. Number four, if there are still Uh, If there is still no repentance, remove them from the church and treat them as unbelievers. Can you see the Father's patient and gracious heart in this process? He provides multiple opportunities for repentance. He pleads and pleads and pleads to come back from the edge of destruction. Only sin and selfishness compel someone to keep going off the cliff. Verse 17 and if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. He didn't listen to you or the other witnesses or the elders. Or the entire church, his soul is in grave danger as he stands on the cliff's edge and his obstinacy has forced the church to remove him from fellowship, hoping he'll have a change of heart and come back. Restoration is the hope. To treat him like a Gentile and tax collector is not to treat him rudely or to cut off all communication, it is to treat him as an unrepentant sinner, an unbeliever, a person outside the church. He may no longer enjoy the benefits of church membership. No Lord's Supper, no serving in office, no shepherding oversight, no true fellowship. The covenant community no longer treats him as part of the royal family because he won't repent or act like an adopted son. His lifestyle is showing him to be a hypocrite. This last step officially considers him outside the kingdom of Christ. It's it's a very serious step that Jesus says is completely necessary for the protection and well-being of the whole church. Again, Dr. Hendrickson clarified, quote, Because of his own stubbornness, he has lost his right to church membership, and it has now become the church's painful duty to make this declaration, in order that even this severe measure of exclusion may, with God's blessing, result in the man's conversion, end quote. The purpose of church discipline is to save and sanctify. Never to be down, always to build up. Never to alienate, always to rehabilitate. It would be very unwise for us to throw out this process because we think we know how to handle sheep better than Jesus the Good Shepherd. This process is how the Good Shepherd shepherds his straying sheep. How good of him to not simply let his sheep go, but to lovingly go after them Through this process, he uses us to protect one another and to go after strays. Is this scary and difficult to do? Sure. Uh, But I hope you sense the love and care of Jesus Christ, your shepherd, in these verses. I I hope you want this. Is the process described in Matthew 18 relevant for every kind of sin in the church? Matthew 18 is for brother-against-brother brother sins. Though Matthew 18 can help, I think in form, uh, public sins are handled differently, as seen in Galatians 2, 1 Timothy 5, and 1 Corinthians 5. What if heresy is taught publicly? I think a public response is warranted. What if adultery or homosexuality or transgenderism are practiced publicly by members of Jerusalem Church? But see, the sin is not against you personally. And what about when children are involved? It seems to me children are under the oversight of their parents and may need their parents' wisdom and help from the very beginning. And what about criminal offenses and life-threatening circumstances? It is right to get the magistrate involved in certain circumstances. Haven't we heard enough about churches covering up criminal activity and not seeking true justice and discipline? And let me say a quick word. I want to be sensitive about this and be careful, but let me say a quick word about physical and sexual abuse. What if a child is abused by someone in the church or by their own parent? Or a spouse is abused by their spouse. And what if that abuser apologizes? Maybe multiple times. Imagine the victim going alone to confront their abuser in private. And what if the perpetrator uses Matthew 18 as a defense for keeping the matter, keeping the abuse private? You can understand the complexities here. And the wisdom needed to rightly apply Matthew 18. I would simply say this, especially to you children. If you have been or are being abused, please tell someone you trust. Tell one of the elders right away so we can help protect you. I believe that in special circumstances, we need to jump to one or two witnesses who can come alongside and provide physical safety. Much, much more to be said on that. Does a local church have the authority to put a professing Christian out of the church and deem them an unbeliever? Absolutely. God gave the church that responsibility, and if a church refuses to do it, God will judge them. God will judge them. Verse 18, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. We've seen this before back in Matthew 16. Jesus gave the keys of the kingdom, one of which is church discipline, to the disciples and eventually elders. In John 20, verse 23, Jesus actually said to his disciples, If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. That, that relates here to church discipline. What is done on earth by the church to exclude unrepentant people from their communion is confirmed in heaven. The church acts with Christ's authority. The good shepherd is shepherding through the process of church discipline. Christ himself binds and looses through his church. Matthew 18 and other passages are the reason Heidelberg 81 through 85 say what they do. I encourage you to read those questions. Meditate on those questions. They They are thoroughly biblical. Heidelberg 85 says, and notice the relation here to Matthew 18. How is the kingdom of heaven closed and opened by church discipline? According to the command of Christ, people who call themselves Christians, but show themselves to be unchristian in doctrine or life, are first repeatedly admonished in a brotherly manner. "...repeatedly admonished in a brotherly manner, if they do not give up their errors or wickedness, they are reported to the church, that is, to the elders. If they do not heed also their admonitions, they are forbidden the use of the sacraments, and they are excluded by the elders from the Christian congregation and by God himself from the kingdom of Christ." They are again received as members of Christ and of the church when they promise and show real amendment. That's Matthew 18 explained. To to turn a blind eye to sin and to do nothing would be to help them pursue hell. Why would a church want to help one another pursue God's judgment and eternal condemnation? Yet many churches do exactly this. They applaud sin, they ignore sin, they help one another sin, and it would be better for them to be drowned in the deep sea than to continue their wickedness and hatred for one another. Read Titus 3. Read 1 Corinthians 5. In 1 Corinthians 5.13, Paul said, In the Spirit of Christ, by the leading of the Holy Spirit, purge the evil person from among you. This is the kind of fruit the gospel produces in us when we believe it. This is how we follow the good shepherd in loving his precious little sheep. He knows what we need much better than we do. Will we trust him or go our own way? If scripture hasn't persuaded you, consider this one simple question What about the victims? At my last church, a man left his family, uh, fell into sin, into adultery, serial adultery, went off with another woman. He he left his family to pursue sin. He was formally disciplined and removed. and, And people had talked with him and appealed with him. How would his wife and kids have felt if we had done nothing? I believe that this man's wife and children who were wronged in such an egregious way felt very loved and protected because we did what Jesus wanted us to do. We went through the steps. Sin is serious. Hell is horrible. Hell is forever. We need to take sin seriously and practice church discipline as Jesus commands us. Is there any comfort in the process of church discipline for those who reprove others in their sin, especially if the process gets ugly, there is comfort. There is comfort. Jesus comforts us in verses 19 and 20. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. The context of these two verses is church discipline. Verse 20 is often taken out of context and misapplied. I've done it. Uh, verses 19 and 20 are Jesus' solemn confirmation that when prayerful church discipline is being done, he's blessing the process. The phrase, anything they ask, is misleading in English. It pertains to the entire matter Uh, to to, to the details of a case of church discipline. As they pray over the situation, over this case of church discipline, as it moves through the, the process, Christ is with them, sanctioning their attempts at restoration and their discipline. Jesus is saying, as you gather to do church discipline, I am with you. I am against those who repent, who refuse to repent, but I am with you. Watching people stiffen under loving reproof and refusing to repent is painful. It's very painful. People don't enjoy going through this process. The comfort in it is Christ's presence with his church. The good shepherd is with us in the process. Will you respond to this? Will I? Will we be obedient? To what our Lord wants us to do? What our good shepherd wants us to do? The teacher's red pen. The surgeon's cut. The parent's discipline. Would you agree they're all good? I wonder if we think verses 15 through 20 are also good.